Okay, today I'm speaking with Locke Kelly. Locke is a meditation teacher and psychotherapist, and he is the author of Shift into Freedom and The Way of Effortless Mindfulness. And he's the founder of the Open Hearted Awareness Institute. And if you want more information on him, you can visit his website at Locke, L-O-C-H, Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, dot org. And Locke and I speak about many things. This becomes a fairly high-level conversation uh, where we do our best to walk you through the, the details of non-dual awareness. I think many of you will find this interesting. Some may find it a little steep at times, but uh, certainly the second half of this conversation will uh, repay re-listening for many of you. And now, without further delay, I bring you Locke Kelly. I am here with Locke Kelly. Locke, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Sam. Great to be here with you. Well, we we had uh, quite an adventure trying to connect by this thing called the internet. It's <laughs> it's a coy mistress. This technology, but uh, hopefully our brains will will function better than than a robot overlords. <laughs> so you you've written two books that have been recommended to me by many users of the Waking Up app, and I'm really looking at your background here. I'm surprised we haven't met before. Mm-hmm. Your books are Shift into Freedom and uh, the new one, The Way of Effortless Mindfulness. Uh, it really seems like we come at these issues from from a, a similar direction, and, and we'll discover, I'm sure, that that's not an accident. Yeah. But to start, just could you just tell us what your background is here mm-hmm. and how you describe your, your current work? You know, if I look back at my childhood, I can see that there are some early experiences that led me to where I am today, but uh, I think what I'm doing now is really looking into whether awakening is possible as a shift of operating system, as kind of a next stage of human development, whether it's true and it's real, whether it can be scientifically and experientially validated, whether it's possible and real and teachable and learnable. Mm. So let's talk about how you got into meditation. Who were your first teachers and and who were the most important influences on you? Yeah, I mean, if I look back, I would say that in some ways I started more about shifting consciousness. And even now, I don't know that I would say I'm so much of a meditation teacher as a, you know, explorer of ways to access awakening or relief of suffering, whatever that takes. (laughs) So early on, I I can remember that I had some ADD and some dyslexia. And so I always knew I was smart, but I couldn't quite feel like I could get it out onto paper. Mm. So I felt like I could really connect fully to myself playing sports. So one of the things that I remember when I was 14, I heard a sportscaster say, he's got eyes in the back of his head when talking about a Mm -hmm. quarterback. And I thought, oh, I kind of know what that means. And I said, let me see if I can do that. 
And at first I tried it kind of with my eyes. And I was like, oh no, that's that's not going to work. That's not what it's about. And then I started to sit there in my living room and open my awareness around uh, and my peripheral vision followed. And then I felt like my awareness was at the side of my head. And then it was like, oh, I'm aware of the space in which sound is coming and going. And then I just somehow continued to open this awareness around behind me. And once it reached this kind of 360 degree panoramic vision, it's like it opened my the space above my shoulders and I kind of dropped into my body kind of from head to heart mind. And then I felt this sense of interconnection mm. with everyone and everything. This was a kind of spontaneous awakening experience before you even had a concept of doing anything introspective. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I think I was a kind of introspective or introverted kid, you know, in some ways, but this was a radical thing, particularly because I had felt some of this, you know, when I had been in, you know, in the zone in sports or in the flow or walking in nature or at moments. But this was, you know, that it was immediately here, that I could access it intentionally and that it made me feel both like I wasn't who I was and in some ways just more ordinary and mm. free of chattering mind and adolescent anxiety. So, and how old were you at this point? I was 14. That's great. That's great. So then what, what happened after that? So then I, I started to play with it myself and I didn't quite know what to make of it, but I was actually playing ice hockey goalie uh, that winter. And one of my friends after a game came up to me and said, hey man, that was great. You know, you played so great. How did you do that? And I kind of said, you really want to know? And I kind of started to explain this. Well, see, I opened my awareness around, blah, 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 and I kind of go, went through what I just said. And he just had his jaw dropped and kind of said, oh, that's cool. And you mm. like walked away. Mm. But then uh, a senior on the team, the next practice came up to me and threw a book to me and said, here, kid, read this. And it was Zen and the Art of Archery. Mm -hmm. Nice. So it, it was like, oh, wow, there's a group of people that value this and intentionally do it and let me let me find out what this is all about so then did you get into zen as your first point of contact with this esoterica i ended up going to at 16 doing tm mm -hmm. and had kind of a little kundalini awakening and then uh in college did did zen with philip kaplu up in uh, upstate new york right and had kind of a similar kind of profound experience in college that was similar to the opening of awareness. My father had developed brain cancer when I was a freshman mm. in college. And then he had operations and he kind of worked his way back. So he was about to return to work. And then he had another aneurysm and he passed away right before I went for my sophomore year. Mm. So I was, you know, very grief-stricken and didn't find uh, many of my peers who had been through this to talk to. And I'd gone to the counseling service and the therapist there was kind of a Freudian who sat there and took notes and didn't say a word. So I lasted about three sessions and didn't go back. 
then I was coming out of library one night, like uh, late fall, and I kind of felt like really weighed down and and this it just felt like a voice within me, like part of me said, I don't know if you can take this much longer. Mm. And what happened was my awareness turned back and kind of looked for like, who said that? Or where's that coming from? Or who's that? And it looked through this sense of self, this point of view, and it opened to this night sky. And I felt this vast sense of interconnection and spacious kind of embrace, a sense of connection to all of nature and looked at the trees and felt the ground under my feet. And uh, I started crying and laughing and just felt like I had connected to a dimension of consciousness that was able to be with, you know, the strongest negative emotion or sensation and feeling and sense of grief. And it Mm. just kind of unburdened me and gave me this curiosity like wow whatever that is i'm interested in that yeah yeah well it's it's interesting that these are kind of coming spontaneously these experiences to, you're not mm-hmm. really in a context where you're deliberately seeking them which is yeah. going to be a point of envy for every meditator who's been struggling <laughs> to have these kinds of experiences so then when when did this become an explicit project yeah. to to have you know, deliberate insights into the nature of, of your own mind. So then I, um, you know, then I had gone up after that to this Philip Kaplu Zen retreat and then came back and, you know, studied uh, philosophy and psychology and uh, comparative religions and then went off to graduate school in New York at Columbia and Union Theological, where they had a program in psychology and spirituality mm-hmm. and a joint degree with clinical social work. And the first semester I was there, I was like, oh, I don't know if this is exactly for me. But a professor came who was offering a fellowship to Sri Lanka. And so I applied and went off on a fellowship to Sri Lanka to study both in the university there and then did a series of 10-day, 5-day, and 121-day retreat in the Theravada Vipassana tradition Mm. in Kandy, Sri Lanka. Right. And so that, you know, I really, you know, I enjoyed it. I, you know, kind of embraced that, felt some effect from it, some stress relief, some sense of calm. But I also (laughs) kind of after one of the retreats, I was taking a bus down, feeling like very calm and the bus kept getting more and more full. And then one guy got on who was drunk and like pushed everyone aside. And I moved aside and he kicked me right in the shin. And I was like, ah! And then, and then he looked at me and went, ha, 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 ha. And I was like, oh, that took about six hours. And now I'm no longer calm. Right. So I, I knew there was some something that wasn't lasting in the in the retreat and certainly after that just seeing seeing how on the cushion and off the cushion were different mm-hmm. but then I was fortunate enough to go up to through India and eventually ended up with our common teacher Tilka Ergen Rinpoche who had been recommended 
And what, what year was that? Do you remember? That was yeah, 80, 1982. 1982. Okay, so yeah, you yeah. Um, you met him uh, long before I did. You were you were yeah. uh, about ten years before huh. I got there. So that's why that's why we didn't bump into each other. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So what? So how many times did you see Tukurigan in Nepal? So I was there about ten days, hmm. but it was the first day that was the whole thing. So yeah. up to Nagi Gampa, this small little hermitage place, which you probably know. Yeah. And then, so uh, he gave a teaching. There's about 10 of us there and about spoke about 15 minutes and then gave this pointing out of sending awareness into the corner of the room and having it look back through who sent it. And immediately within those two minutes, I felt the same, as calm as I did after a long Vipassana retreat. And even more so, my eyes were open and I felt the kind of joy and connection and a kind of feeling of uh, well-being and relief of suffering that was, you know, extraordinary and similar to, you know, some of these other experiences. And I was just kind of saying, is, is this really it? Here's what I'm experiencing and kind of like a like a, an American kind of just going like, we're, you know, is this real? Is this happening? How did this happen? You know, we're, you know, and uh, he was really enthusiastic. Like, this is it. This is what, mm. you know, your true nature, this is what it feels like, exactly what you're saying. So I was just kind of stunned that it was the same in some ways as what I had tasted. It was as simple. It was as close. It was as loving and free of self and yet ordinary and extraordinary and that it was, you know, accessible. And, you know, I would say two of the other people kind of got it from that pointing, but other people didn't. Mm -hmm. So, but, uh, you know, that, that kind of led me there to say, you know, just stayed and had similar experiences for that next 10 days and then thought, uh, you know, at that point, I thought maybe I would stay for a year or meditate or join a monastery. And I immediately got this kind of sense of, oh, no, I, I can go back to the United States. And this is, you know, and really kind of go deeply into what this means, how to how to live this. Because he gave this simple map of recognition and then realization and then what he called stabilization and then expression as the kind of unfolding of this awakening. And have you spent any time on retreat since that pointing out? Is, is, is retreat practice still part of your your life or or not? Uh, yeah, I did um, quite a bit with, uh, with, with different uh, teachers for, you know, those next 10, 15 years. Once uh, his sons came over, I'd studied with Trungu Rinpoche, who's a Sutra Mahamudra teacher, and then uh, Trollig Rinpoche and then uh, Minja Rinpoche and Sony Rinpoche mm. came over and I've you know, done maybe 12 five-day retreats with each and you know, kind of got a chance to talk to them and check it out and ask questions. And early on, you know, when it was very small with each of them, you know, got a chance to spend some time and make sure that what I was 
getting was clear and and now it's less so about that now it's more small glimpses uh many times during mm. the day and 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 then even wherever i am on vacation it's kind of the last sitting retreat i sat it just didn't seem that different mm-hmm. <laughs> whether i was sitting yeah. or or walking or going to lunch or so i've i haven't as much done that i'm more teaching retreats now okay so let's let's drill down on yeah. some of this some of what you've said i'm sure is going to sound spooky to many of our listeners <laughs> sending awareness out into the corner of the room and looking right. back at where it came from and seeing behind your head and and all of that so i want to get as clear as we can about sure. the experience and what we may or may not be claiming about the nature of consciousness but the f- first thing i think we should address is that tuk organ was a zogchen master and he, he gave what we've just alluded to as as the pointing out instruction in zogchen and this i recently did a an event with his son mingi rinpoche who you just mentioned yes and was kind of trying to get him to speak about zogchen and even give the pointing out instruction to a general audience which is mm-hmm. something that he was not willing to do for reasons that are are totally understandable in that tradition so we should just flag the fact that there's a taboo around giving these teachings out to to all comers and and it's it's actually somewhat uncharacteristic that you were able to just waltz in to Nagi Gumpa in 1982 and and just get the pointing out instruction immediately when i when i got to uh Nepal in um i believe it was ni- 1992 looking for Tukorgan I, I was told he was on retreat and i didn't really i didn't know that he, there was a sort of a code to to get past the the lines at the gate to actually get up to Nagi Gumpa and get teachings from him so i i spent that trip studying with his other son Chokinima getting mm-hmm. kind of introductory practices and then wound up on a subsequent trip getting in to see his father and at that point he was unlike many Tibetan lamas he was and Dzogchen masters he was giving the teachings fairly directly but he would still require a a kind of preliminary practice and all of all of us had come in our group were, were kind of long-term vipassana yogis mm. but um he still wanted us to do some kind of modified nundro the the, the mm-hmm. preliminary practices to sort of get on the same page with with his tradition. So, it's an interesting problem for me and I I I assume it might be a problem for you as well in how to talk about this without kind of violating the trust of of these particular teachers because I, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like a a problem of violating uh some, someone's intellectual property, right? So, I like I I don't I don't really feel like I can totally recapitulate exactly how Tukorgan gave the pointing out instruction but you know it is a enough of a universal principle which has mm-hmm. echoes elsewhere and in, in other traditions that don't have the same policy as you know and I mean as yes. I reference people like Douglas Harding and his on having no head exercise and are you familiar with Harding you know, I am book? yes yeah. I met him once and, and oh. have, have done those exercises yeah in oh, cool what? yeah and you know advaita vedanta and you know, mm-hmm. i've studied with other teachers who are obviously getting at the same thing and then i just have my own experience to draw from and and you know i i try to point this out to people in in my own way as as i can see you do but i'm wondering are, are you at all tongue tied as a result of 
the Dzogchen Samaya concern of just not spreading the teachings mm -hmm. to the wrong people or what would be considered the wrong people from that tradition? Yes. I mean, I certainly honor the tradition. And as you heard, I didn't fill in some of the other traditions like you um, that, you know, kind of the first pointing out I got was actually from a Chinese physician who taught me the the secret of the golden flower and and said that the turning the light of awareness around is is the pre, is the sublime truth and he showed me it and it's basically the same and then uh, some of the Ramana Papaji lineage I had met before on my way up through India and so you know I mentioned Tolku Ergen and it's interesting that I did ask like right away can I share this with my friends and mm. and the translator was not happy but Tolku Ergen said yes this you can you can it's you know better to get it from a uh, but you can tell them about it mm. you know so that's kind of was, what I'm was doing was a translator kind of, was a translator Eric Schmidt yes <laughs> yes <laughs> so Eric was like looking at me it's like what, what, you can't yeah. ask that even asking that question yeah. and I was like okay but he was like yeah sure you can share it you know with them there's you know, they may not get it, but it's, you know, talk about it, which is kind mm -hmm. of what I've done here. And I feel like, yeah, it's it's a curious thing because it's in the history of wisdom traditions and it's in primarily the main tradition you know, that I'm s studying and is the Sutra Mahamudra tradition, which is North Indian, pre-Tibetan, where mm -hmm. there were many people awakening in the midst of you know, being fishmongers and householders, and there's a whole tradition of that, that I both feel like I can honor the traditions of Dzogchen and not teach their exact pointing out instructions. When I talked to Sokhni Rinpoche, he said, yes, yes, you can share all your, your variety of them and just don't share this one. And then he just hmm. said this, this languaging of it. And I said, okay, yeah. good. And then, so I didn't do that. And said, I said, okay, otherwise. And Mingyur Rinpoche in conversation said, yes, teach Sutra Maha Mudra. So I feel like there's, you know, there's there's an honoring of the tradition and then feel like there's a precious jewel that in many ways is so available and accessible to people now that's not physically dangerous. I mean, even the... The dangers are that somebody will misunderstand it and then go off and not come back because they they didn't get it. Right. So I, I don't I don't consider myself a Dzogchen teacher or teaching in the Dzogchen lineage or but more of a modern wisdom tradition that you know all this is consciousness. All this is I got this prior <laughs> prior to hearing and being validated through some of the Tibetan teachers and don't teach the exact thing mm -hmm. that they teach and yet don't feel like, you know, the Dharma police are, are, are right. af after any of us because there's a, you know, there's an understanding now that uh, if people are, are getting it and, and I've checked it out enough to feel, you know, I'm in, in the, the, the contemporary sphere yeah, well, yeah, so it sounds like we're on the same page there. So mm -hmm. so let's go back to what we're claiming here, because, it, you know, you, you and I have this common experience. Mm -hmm. We have this experience in common, uh, whether, whether or not it's, this is actually the common experience yes. remains to be seen. 
And um, I wrote about this a little bit in my book, Waking Up, but I haven't talked much about it. And again, this is there's something we're having this conversation in the context of people who are learning to practice you know, what you call deliberate mindfulness mm-hmm. and even mindfulness that becomes effortless. And, you know, throughout this is being discussed in the context of, of a non-dual mindfulness being possible and, and the self being illusory and that this can be discovered directly and is not really predicated on on building up a lot of concentration mm-hmm. or logging many hours on the cushion. But for one who hasn't had that insight, one, it can just sound like a, a false promise. I mean, what do you mean the self is an illusion? And what, what do you mean this consciousness is non-dual? And so there's, there's some doubt that creeps in there. But also it can just be frustrating for somebody who can't see this, who, who doesn't know what is being talked about and all they have is their their dualistic effort to be more attentive and to be more mindful you know i don't know how much you experienced that frustration from from the inside it sounds like you had more of an insight into this than the, the ordinary dualistic mindfulness practitioner mm-hmm. from, from the beginning but i totally understand how this can be frustrating but the thing that we're describing is the experience of in a moment having it really is just a, a kind of piece of knowledge. I mean, the mm-hmm. fact that there's a, a way to look very much on the surface of consciousness to recognize something fundamental to it. And it, it, and it is the, the recognition that there's no center, there's no, mm-hmm. there's no subject in the middle of experience to, yes. to whom experience refers. And it is a, a, a paradoxical instruction in telling someone to look for the center, a look for the self. They have to have the requisite mindfulness and concentration to do, right? They, they can't follow the instruction unless they have some ability to pay attention and, and not be lost in thought. So there is some reason for why there'd be, there would need to be some kind of preliminary meditation practice. And one concern here, and this, uh, this does somewhat justify the, the Dzogchen policy of not giving out these teachings too early. One concern is that someone can have a a legitimate glimpse of this, but it's so brief and so without apparent quality, right? It's not like bliss comes flooding into the nervous system. And so it can it can seem so ordinary that they can fail to see, unless they, they've actually been practicing dualistic meditation for a while, they can fail to see that this actually solves the equation of their contemplative efforts and I believe Douglas Harding had a, a line. He said that the voice of the devil says, so what? Right. So he, yeah. he acknowledged that some people would come to him and have this experience of headlessness briefly. And they it just was a curiosity. It was just, you know, well, so what? What's that good for? So then the, the, the Dzogchen concern there is that, okay, once you've said so what in the face of the perfect practice, essentially, and just walk away, then, then the, the door to the Dharma is, is really closed to you. You went to the mountaintop, you met the, the Dzogchen master, <laughs> you recognized that there was no self for a, a, the briefest of instance, and then you you didn't have the right context for it. Mm-hmm. I guess that I guess that is the concern. Yes. Uh, and something I'm, I'm somewhat wary of, I, but do you have any, um, I, I 
<laughs> put that all before you to to react to any way you want. Yes, thank you. So, so I would say that you know there are those at this at this t- time in my learning and exploring and having seen thousands of students now and you know reflecting on my own experience that there are some that it does benefit to go through deliberate mindfulness practice and traditional practices however i would now say for most it doesn't and that actually mm. you know even to say like it almost is like saying you know you wouldn't want to give like a young child an ethical training tell them that this is ethically wrong to do this or ethically good to to share to a two-year-old who says it's mine i don't want to share because then they wouldn't get it that it's good to share so it, it's mm. almost like really i don't know about that because <laughs> i think the problem is more the lack of a map the lack of a view that does this reason why people say so what because some of them mm. do see there's an absence but then they establish a metacognitive mindful witness of the of the space or they just feel the absence and don't have the map that that's just the beginning for most is to see the absence of the self and then the next pointer is okay so are you aware of negative space or are you aware from awake space and where are you aware from so that's been a lot of my work is this kind of preparation of extending the pointing out instructions or i don't call them that i call them glimpse practices which help establish going from that initial pointer to establishing the new operating system which isn't just absence of small self it's actually the awake true nature or no self luminous self is what i think minger bache calls it you know even mm. willingness to use that word which you don't have to use you could use open hearted awareness or ordinary mind or some sense of just being or something like that but that in some ways the use of the attentional system to develop a one pointed focus on your breath can not only make attention stronger but it makes the focuser stronger mm. and it creates a point of view So one of my metaphors is it's almost like doing a lot of push-ups for the first preliminary practice and then the second is can you now are you ready to climb to the top of the mountain so you didn't develop right. this other system which actually is a different kind of awareness it's not just absence of self but it's a an, an awake panoramic embodied awareness that then can you can focus on your breath from there and you can notice that thoughts feelings and sensations are coming and going but they don't feel like they're separate as much as they feel like there's an ocean of awareness in which there's this moving dancing thoughts feelings sensations that don't need to be gotten rid of yeah and i've spoken about the liability of kind of the ordinary vipassana curriculum a lot. I mean, I, I badgered Joseph Goldstein about this a bunch in, in some podcasts. He's a great friend, mm-hmm. but I was you know, he was one of my first meditation teachers, and I studied with 
with uh, his teacher Upandita Sayadaw and, and was trained in that Burmese yes. style of, you know, kind of micro attention to the contents of consciousness. But it is just a, a machine of dualistic fixation, which is the, the training. And, you know, I have no doubt that people can eventually get beyond that by that path. But it does set up a, a kind of false point of view and, and, and seems to ramify it for the longest time. Even if you're having spontaneous experiences of the union between the the observer and the observed, mm-hmm. and, and you know, in, in in moments there's just hearing or just seeing, and, and the self seems to drop away, that dropping away seems haphazard and it seems born of intense concentration, and it's it's not obvious that that is the way consciousness always already is and can be seen to be so in a moment without any apparent real concentration, just you know, or or certainly without any buildup to it. And the analogy that that I've used somewhere, I think I used this in my book, but I don't know how this will strike you, but it felt misleading in the way that occasionally if if you approach a window, Mm -hmm. you'll notice that there's kind of two planes of focus. You can either look through the window at the the world behind or into the, the building, depending on what side of it you're on, or you can look at your own reflection in the window. And if the goal is to see your face, No matter how ardently you look through the window into the the field of objects and events that are you know behind it, your focus is on the wrong plane, mm-hmm. right? And you know eventually you might find yourself spontaneously shifting to the right plane. But it is possible for someone to just kind of tap the glass and say, you know, focus right here. You know, this is the plane. Yes. My experience with Tukorgan had that character. I mean, I, I had been just doing more or less nothing but practice meditation for you know some years at that point and my the whole goal was to cut through this illusion of the the ego and i'd had all kinds of experiences you know high and and low and and strange and otherwise with psychedelics and on retreat mm-hmm. and you know had had quite a colorful tour of the kind of the phenomenology of of the contemplative life mm-hmm. And he just, you know, in this conversation, just pointed out that you can look directly for what is looking or what you imagine is looking. And the crucial thing that he communicated was that this is not a matter of going deep within. This is right on the surface. And another analogy that I've often used is kind of like looking for the optic blind spot. Mm -hmm. I mean, once you know how to do that with a, a couple of marks on a piece of paper, you see this the thing you're seeing the space in which you're you're seeing it it is right on the surface yes. paradoxically there really is no alternative but to practice ordinary mindfulness until you can practice non-ordinary non-dualistic mindfulness but it's not about going deeper within in in the sense that you're you're finding hidden things in the mind or in in consciousness that require this massive effort to go further from from the place where you seem to have set out, because it's, it's set up dualistically, where you have this this sense of a meditator, the sense that that attention is being pointed from a locus of of consciousness in the head, and now the goal is to get closer to all the things you might notice: sounds, sensations, the breath, and to get better and better mm-hmm. at that, you know, and, and, and develop more and more of a laser focus. Yeah. You have to keep 
calling into question the, the, the starting point, the point of view from which attention is the center yes. and can be aimed. Yeah, so the, you know, I mean, even in the Vipassana tradition, the Ajahn Cha and Ajahn Mun, they both focus more on to whom did this happen. And in, in right. Tibetan Buddhism, there's a focus, are you doing object-based practice or subject-based practice? So, I mean, much of what I've done is to answer the question is, you know, focused long-term concentration absorption or just watching contents until you kind of uh, relax into the awareness that's aware the only way, or can you literally turn awareness around? So this is the tradition that is within the many different wisdom traditions from Taoism to, to Advaita Vedanta to Mahamudra is it's more of a, an immediate turning awareness or unhooking awareness and returning it home to the spacious awareness uh, that then is aware. So you keep looking not at the content, but you just look at the context. And when you learn how to do that and you don't stop at just the absence, but you go through what, you know, the Mahamudra says, you're aware of, you know, absence of self. Now the curiosity is, are you aware of the aware? Now where's the awareness that's aware? And you start to feel, oh, there is another operating system here. And it's actually less dangerous, I think, than, you know, some of what Willoughby Britain has done some studies about dark night where if you just deconstruct the self, you can mm. get flooded with the unconscious. Whereas what I've found is in an hour and a half, I can get eight out of 10 people to get, to have the experience of, you know, what Douglas Harding points to. And then even further, which is basically feeling like you can view from the awareness and that the embodied awareness is non-dual embodied, meaning that, mm. and it's literally like once you feel what I call local awareness, which is kind of the the curious thing that led me to this. You know, like you, uh, being kind of scientific, I was like, all right. So, if awareness is aware of awareness, where is the awareness that can know awareness if I'm not aware? And <laughs> So getting a feel for, from the kind of awake consciousness to notice that when I'm focusing on something, I'm not using attention in its normal sense because I'm not looking from the moving mind and I'm not looking from a mindful point of view. I'm actually focused from this field of interconnected panoramic awareness that is none other than the energy that's arising and so I can focus from this spacious awareness, like for three hours without losing, becoming distracted, because I'm focused on being aware of awareness. And then that awareness is focused on the object. It sounds, you know, it sounds odd, but it literally it takes no, much, no longer to learn how to do this which is, you know, the advanced yet simpler practice than it does to learn how to do basic deliberate mindfulness. 
I found the same number of people are available to learn it and the same amount of people will stay with it and they're immediately able to recognize then usually they can recognize with the help of a teacher then they can recognize on their own a little bit you know through small glimpses then it sustains itself longer then there's almost like a release into the self sustaining period where people go through hours and days of and the key is that you're not on a cushion but you're operating because it's a new operating system you're able to walk talk and in fact walking talking relating and creating actually you know create neuronal networks to stabilize the new awakened consciousness why don't you take me through it yeah. and uh, it, it occurred to me that we might do this and maybe i will um you know occasionally annotate my experience or ask you questions or or, or anticipate what might be confusing or, or sure. perplexing to other listeners but yeah it just Start me at ground zero, and, and let's see where yeah, we go. Yeah, so, you know, anyone else who's listening is welcome to come along for the pointing. So I often say that, you know, the doubting mind is here and welcome, so thank you for trying to help, but asking it to kind of be an object rather than a subject as we start. You know, stay with beginner's mind and open heart and open mind to feel your way through this. So, the you know, the first place to start would be to start with your own best way, kind of doing the headless way. So, I mean, I could mention that or you could. Let's start with someone who actually does not know what we're okay. talking about. I mean, there's someone who's practicing dualistic mindfulness okay. and they know what it's like to be given the instruction that they should be aware of their breath mm -hmm. or, or sounds or the body, or we can start eyes open or closed, however you want. But let's just start with the okay. the conventional meditator. Okay. So we'll start, I'll start with the kind of conventional meditator. So we'll just do a short starting of being beginning to focus on your breath so we could just do this for a couple breaths so just begin to locate the feeling of your chest or your belly rising and falling and just a simple goal of one-pointed focus on this object, which is sensation, rising, pausing and letting go in this one area of your body. And then just noticing this curious shift from being aware of your breath as the object to now feel the focuser, feel the location and the felt sense of where are you focusing on your breath from. Just let that awareness of that observer become observed 
So just notice that the awareness that goes toward the breath can then come back to feel whether there is a location of an observer needed or whether there's a more spacious awareness that's above your neck. Does it matter, Locke, if people's eyes are open or closed at this point? It doesn't so much, no. I mean, ultimately, the there's a kind of series I do that teaches how to keep your eyes open. So, But this is just to get the feeling of the what was the location of observer can be observed and then have the awareness kind of look through to see that there's no solid observer in your head behind your eyes. One thing I'm tempted to add here, I mean, this is so the conventional feeling, I'm sure, is that consciousness is in the head, mm-hmm. right? Yes. The observer's in the head. The breath is at some distance yes. from where I am in the head, and I can point attention at the breath, or I can point it elsewhere, but it's just me in here, you know, a passenger in the body. So when you when you talk about, is there a more spacious awareness above your shoulders, one way of suggesting that, that larger context for me is just to point out that this feeling of being in the head, every signature of that experience, the feeling of having a head, the feeling of being behind your face, the feeling of having a face, all of that, anything you could possibly notice is simply appearing in consciousness. Consciousness isn't in the head. Every sign that there's a head is an appearance in consciousness. So that's the pointer to, to feel like that, first to feel that focuser, and then to really realize that that observer can be observed by consciousness itself. That there's an observing consciousness that's not located in your head, that's aware of your breath and aware of the place you were focusing from. Mm. And then just to get a feel of where, just as you can locate your breath, does this consciousness have a shape, size, or color, or limit? that's aware of the focuser. And so what is this centerless space? How does this feel? And then just notice, are you aware of this spacious awareness? Or is this spaciousness aware? What's it like? to be aware from that which doesn't have a location and isn't using thought. Yeah, so that, that's a nice distinction, This the sense that you can be aware of this openness is slightly misleading. You're really aware mm-hmm. as yes. it. Yes, and so that is literally an important pointer. So that's in my series, like a series of pointers. Like, are you aware of the headlessness? Oh, okay, now you're aware of the headlessness. Or are you aware from the space where there was a head? Are you aware from the 
openness. And that is kind of what I call a U-turn, <laughs> Y-O-U-turn. And then is that, is there any, what's it like to feel that you're aware from this boundless, timeless, open field of awareness and also aware of thoughts, feelings, and sensations. So that the, is the spacious awareness open and is it also within? Is there a sense of this kind of seamless space that's arising as thought, feeling, and sensation? Can you feel that if you stay there a little longer from this aware space, you can start to be curious about whether energy or thought or movement is made of awareness or whether there's two things happening. And that little pointer may happen initially, but eventually when it happens, it changes from a meditation state to a non-dual ground. Right. Yeah, one thing to be aware of here is that in any exercise of this kind, and I present some of them in my app, it's possible to lose sight of the fact that any clear glimpse of headlessness or, or non-duality is liable to be very brief here. So it's, mm -hmm. and then a sort of conceptual reification of it takes over and, and you begin to think about it. it. And, and this is this is another one of the, the liabilities of teaching you know, Dzogchen too early, I'm sure, from the Dzogchen side, which is people can, right. if they have not been trained in really rigorous moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness, you can become someone who's sort of thinking about how open and spacious mm -hmm. consciousness is, and you're not aware that this undercurrent of thought is not the same right. thing as actually recognizing the non-dual nature of right. consciousness moment-to-moment. -moment. Yeah. Yeah, so beautiful. So that that so the way I, I kind of map that out is, are you aware of the absence of a point of view or a self-center? And then are you aware of it? Or are you aware from it? And now, you know, feel the movement from conceptual knowing to not knowing. And now feel what is it like if there's a not knowing that knows? What is it like to be alert and aware and feel thoughts, feelings, sensations without using thought or orienting to a thinker while remaining alert and connected. And what do you mean by not knowing in this context? So the big move is really from what's called, you know, conceptual knowing to non-conceptual knowing or SEM to Rigpa. So Sam is conceptual mind, small mind, small sense of self. And then the key difference in some ways in the Sutra Mahamudra, which again is kind of North Indian tradition, is they came up with this sense that there's an awareness-based sense of knowing that's prior to thought in a baby and then develops into a conceptual thinking and then starts to create self-referencing through what's called, interestingly, self-awareness in psychology and self-consciousness, meta-awareness, which are still within this kind of thought-observer, small 
mind. And then the big move is to go, like Zen emphasizes, not knowing or don't know mind. But then you can get caught in this kind of gap of being spaced out or, but now the pointing is, okay, are you aware from awareness without using thought or labels or without noting back to feel the movement of sound, energy, thought directly with a a direct perception that's non-thought based alertness that could think about Mm. it but doesn't have to to even be able to respond or you know to walk in nature to drive a car there's a kind of a you're doing it second nature by heart it's a non-conceptual awake alert that has like all your conditioning poured back into the field Mm. or you're in this dimension of consciousness that's it's wisdom mind really it's it's and so that's the key is it's not is going beyond thought to that which is still knowing through this kind of alertness yeah it seems that this is where some of the traditional language of the dreamlike character of phenomenon or or Mm. discussions of emptiness come creeping in Mm -hmm. because there's something like when you're looking at the world and and yourself in the world, your, your body in the world, or even the contents of of your mind, from this point of view, everything does have a a kind of intrinsic mysteriousness about it. There's the layer at which you've conceptualized everything. You look around and you see mm-hmm. objects whose name you know. You see books. You see cups. You see computers. You see your hand. But if you look more closely and look from the place where the center has dropped out, I, mean, I, I guess you can sort of get mm-hmm. this even dualistically, but it's certainly clearer without a sense of subject. You see that on some basic level, everything well, everything is, is just an expression of consciousness. I mean, everything is kind of like an image in a mirror where it's, it's an expression of, of the light that's reflected in the mirror. So that the boundaries between things are, are somewhat provisional on that level. But mm-hmm. on some level, you, you don't know what anything is. I mean, you, you have a name. Yes, yeah. from your mind, because you're not referencing language or, you know, signifiers. Right. You're directly perceiving. Right. I mean, it's not that you've become an idiot, but it's just, it's, it's also, you've just no. recognized that it's one thing to have concepts that refer to various phenomena and to have knowledge about them, you know, semantic knowledge. But that's not the same thing as seeing something with total attention and recognizing that it is... Right. Your, your concepts don't actually reach into the thing itself. Yes. And, and that, you know, kind of like language, we'll use language as a metaphor first, is like you don't think about language you already know, it's already installed. So it's like, what if everything else was installed? And you, it's like riding a bicycle. It's like if I said, okay, are you balancing on the bicycle? You could think about it, but once you're riding a bicycle, it's a non-conceptual knowing. It's a direct perception of balance that 
is able to function very well as you ride long and balance, but you don't need to go to the screen of the mind and self-reference or self. And it's, it's like, it is like a flow state. In my first book, I actually make a distinction of absorbed flow state and panoramic flow state. So it's not like an absorbed flow state where you're closed down as if you're doing a task and then time passes, you look up and two hours have gone by. It's like a panoramic flow state, which is different, where you're, you know, dribbling a basketball and you see all your teammates and you see the clock, you know the clock and you're, everything's slowed down, you're in the now and you're optimally functioning and you're feeling the, the, the you know, the spectators and you have a sense of, you know, looking one way and throwing it the other way because you have installed all this information that you don't have to keep going to pop-ups and programs on the mind when you're in awake consciousness. There's often a comparison made between meditation and, and meditative experiences and flow. And I guess the, the crucial difference for me is that in some flow states, like in the first you described, the kind of narrow one, mm-hmm. there's there's not the, yeah. the metacognitive awareness of Right. Just what's happening, right? You're just, you're embedded in this experience, but you don't have, you're not recognizing anything especially profound about the nature of consciousness. And in, in a, even in a more panoramic state of the sort you describe in basketball, there's still this illusion that there's something special about basketball, right? Or that the only way to, to access this is in some unusual activity and that right. consciousness isn't already right. this way all the time, even when you're just, you know, right. in the most boring possible circumstance. So that's just the mistake of the, what I call the mistake of the door, mm. which is that you think it has to do with, and it's a classical thing, oh, it's only on that mountain, oh, it's only in that teacher, oh, it's only in that activity that I can experience awake consciousness or flow. Whereas when you do these practices, these small glimpses during the day, you realize, oh, let me access flow. And then whatever I'm doing will feel like basketball. Right. So literally this, this is kind of not a meditation system. It's actually a optimal functioning system where you feel like you just, oh, let me shift into this awareness-based embodied, open-hearted sense of being. And okay, now what am I doing? Oh, I'm meeting this person. Oh, wow, I don't know who they are. Wow, how are you? You feel very kind of open and non-threatened and interested. And you're in that which you thought you could only access through your special interest or special doorway. So uh, I feel like I, I derailed you on the way to some other stopping point. So is, is there more guidance you want to give me here? I've, I've done some yeah. turning, but I'm as yet yes. unenlightened so, and neurotic. <laughs> so yeah, you, like sometimes I say, don't, don't go back to the mind for a right, second okay, opinion. Right. So, and it is really the last place we left is this new kind of thing, which is awake awareness is awareness-based knowing. It's not knowing that knows. It's like knowing by heart or knowing by second nature. It's not looking to a thinker. It doesn't need to create a manager and it doesn't need to look to think about thinking in order to, it's almost like a continuous intuition 
or a wisdom, it's really called wisdom mind because it's the next level of knowing. So when you, and it's really, you know, I think I've heard you say that, you know, it's, it's about being free of the thinker. And so being free of the thinker, you need a new operating system rather than just not knowing. Otherwise, you're on the cushion, you can experience that. But as soon as you get off the cushion, unless you have this awareness-based, embodied sense of new intelligence, which is really awake, it's called awake awareness or rigpa or nature of mind that is the new operating system, which is already installed and available initially by glimpsing. So the kind of what we did is we went through kind of the doorway similar to headless way of turning awareness back from looking out to feel that there is no head. And you can do it by imagining there's no head. Then that's the absence of self, the decentering. Then the curious question is, are you aware of the space or are you aware from the space? And then the curious question is, being aware from the space just to feel where are you aware from and now are you aware of stillness and now are you aware of energy movement thought and are they made of awareness or do you feel like they're that the sky that you're aware from is also appearing as the cloud or the ocean of awareness is appearing as the wave of your body and mind so you're aware from outside and within equally and then the curious, where is, can you look without a looker? Is there a feeling of just seeing and just being? And so then you feel like, where are you aware of your knee from? And then where are you aware of the space in the room from? And then how does it feel to know, to be alert without orienting to thought? So you could move your hand and you could use thought intentionally, but what is it like if thought is just like mental sensation? What if you literally don't need to orient to thought any more than you do to the sensation in your left foot? What if there's a knowing that's already doing that, that you can just let go into? So your only intention is to let your local awareness rest as this spacious embodied awareness and then start to trust that there's this kind of interconnected no self luminous self that you're starting to get a feeling of how it feels without orienting to thought without creating a thinker without going back to thought for a second opinion so you start to feel, many people will start to feel a sense of almost relief and then what's called ground of being, which is kind of an okayness or a safety. Once you're resting as the awareness that's embodied and here and connected, there's nothing that you can hurt you. There's nothing that needs to be gotten rid of, nothing to gain that you feel like you don't need to create a self in order to now begin to do some simple task. And then you're likely, once you do that, you're likely to lose it and go back to the creating a 
separate sense of self. And then I usually recommend just saying, no big surprise, just re-recognize. And when you say creating a, a sense of self, how would you describe what is happening there? Because obviously there is no, so, it's not that yeah, a self so, is coming into being in any real sense. So what, what is selfing yeah, as, a, that, as an activity? Yeah, I mean, that's the fascinating thing is that once you, once you are able to go beyond self, that becomes the curious question. All right, let me just stay here. And once you realize, oh, I'm aware from space and from this embodied presence. Okay, now let me just wait and see how the self reforms. And that's where I learned a lot about, you know, how to kind of recognize and realize and start to abide and stabilize more awakening is just to feel what would happen. And what happens is it's not so much just that thoughts or feelings arise, but they kind of pattern into a little part of you or, or pattern that starts to act like it's you. Like, oh, I should do that. Or I should, you know, what's, what's that? And if you can stay in this kind of open, embracing, not trying to preference stillness or silence or no thought, but start to feel like, okay, thought is made of awareness. Now bring it on. So then a part will start to come up and go like, oh, I don't know if I can do this on Monday. And then if you can just stay as the ocean that feels this wave of, I don't know if I can do this on Monday. And then you feel like, oh, you know, isn't that sweet? That's like a, you know, part of me, but doesn't collapse me back into it. And then sometimes you'll get collapsed. But the self, you know, so it's what we're talking about. It's not like what Damasio calls the proto-self. It's not like the self that animal animals have, the kind of primordial like self like a dog or a cat or body body is separate that stays the same and it's not your autobiographical self meaning you know you're still ordinarily you and you'll like the foods you like and don't like the foods you don't like it's the driver it's a car that doesn't need a driver it's <laughs> there doesn't need that self that mm. self-referencing self that is actually like an ego function that has decided that it's an ego identity. So the ego functions fine. Like I remember where my keys are. I know what my phone number is, but there doesn't need to be a manager on the small level of these different functions. There is a kind of almost a spacious loving presence that then doesn't have this existential anxiety and that's the really where the first relief of suffering is this sense of well-being or okayness or non-striving, non-fear, non-worry, non-shame. So you're talking a bit about the positive qualities that, that yes. kind of by happy accident are available when you're no longer lost in thought every second and, and dualistically fixating on on everything mm -hmm. so and, and none of that is necessarily apparent in a first glimpse of right you know emptiness or or non-dual awareness so is it a matter of more time spent in 
that recognition that gives that, that allows the positive qualities to, to come to the fore? I mean, do you need you need more than many brief punctuations of ordinary fixation? So it's kind of hard to time yeah. these things, no, but, I, I get, but how long to... Yeah, I, I get a sense yeah. of what you're saying, yeah. And that's kind of the premise in some ways in many forms of Dzogchen and in many forms of kind of more modern non-duality is you just recognize the uh, Rigpa, rest is Rigpa, and it will unfold. Or just recognize pure awareness and just hang out as pure awareness but in this more Mahamudra style, kind of that we were playing with a bit here, that you can curiously start, that as soon as awareness unhooks from the thinker, you're literally operating from awake consciousness. Mm. So that's the kind of crazy premise, <laughs> but the awakeness is moving itself. The doer is not moving your awareness. Your awareness is moving because it's primary, it's more... So anyhow, so the awareness then recognizes its sense of pure awareness. Then it almost like discovers already, there's an awareness that's already aware without my help. That's the primary awareness that was being hidden by the self-referencing. Now, am I aware of it or am I aware from it? Oh, I'm aware from it. So there, unless you do that intentionally, very few people will get to that place. And intentionally doesn't mean intellectually or, or, or by the ego doing it. It's by the awareness curiously, like knowing itself by itself as itself. Like it starts to know, oh, I'm aware from here. Yeah. And as soon as you do that, yeah, then you are that. And then the non-dual pointer is, is energy thought a separate? If if then you're in this kind of awareness and things are coming and going in it, like clouds or birds, like thoughts, feelings, like you're in choiceless awareness, that's a meditation state. So the key is being aware from awareness and starting to feel that energy, thought, sensation, curiously feeling, are they made of awareness? Is there not two things? Is there awareness and appearance that are not two. Hmm. And so that embodies, that's what goes like, oh, and I think Douglas Harding had that like all in one glimpse, like the one glimpse that he writes mm -hmm. about. But that's not, as you say, that's not normal. Mostly people, like you described, feel the absence, then the pure awareness that's aware, then the awareness energy or the awareness non-dual awareness that is none other than energy and then the embodiment and then kind of this open-heartedness which are which is kind of these natural qualities of loving kindness which is already here mm. so that's the key is that there's already you don't have to develop the brahma viharas there they actually show up once you you know shift into this awareness mm. do you think it's ever useful to intentionally think thoughts in order to get a, a better purchase on them as appearances in consciousness in and as consciousness sure yeah i mean that's a good playful way to do it absolutely yeah that's that can be a great there's actually a practice in uh, mahamudra called chopping it so you you like stay and you just wait 
until something arrives and you go like there you like chop it <laughs> like you, you or you make it happen you can sort of make it happen you, like you start, if i ask you to you know think of a yes. movie star and then yes. someone i mean there's many things you can recognize in that i mean one you can you can recognize that even if you felt like there was some choice to make between the candidates who promoted themselves, you know, you, you might, might have thought of two or three, and then just landed on one. You know, you didn't you didn't think of every movie star you could think of, right? So there's no real real free will in in the in the selection right. process. It's all it's all just happening. That's right. And That's you right. can't explain why you landed on one rather than the other. But also, if you consciously sort of seed the mind with a, a in this way and provoking a thought. You can get it at its moment of emergence, whereas if you're, you know, if yes. other, other thoughts seem to creep up behind you and just become you. Yeah, and then the the reason to do that in in there's two reasons. One is in the deliberate mindfulness to see, oh, there's no self here, and they're just, you know, uh, appearing on their own. And then in the non-dual realization is to kind of wait and see, okay, are they a separate thing? Or can I feel like they're just kind of arising like a wave or a particle out of the quantum field of awareness made of the field? And that's where the non-dual feeling comes. It sounds, you know, for those who haven't experienced it, it sounds a little like esoteric, but once you get a feel for it, and some people, many people who are like more subtle body energetic types can get that one pretty easily they just can't separate out and find the pure awareness right they can get like oh i i feel totally connected to everything okay so now where are you aware of that from are you aware from kind of subtle body or is there kind of a foundation of this spacious pure awareness and once they get that they're like oh my god that's incredible yeah it's interesting so this is not a distinction i have made much, if at all, thus far in the app. It's mm-hmm. a, um, I've certainly focused on the the cognitive side of the shift, you know, just seeing the centerlessness and seeing that, that awareness is, yes. is intrinsically without a center. You know, I keep making it clear that anything you can notice is simply an appearance and, and modification of, of consciousness. So it's it's all of a piece. I mean, the, the, the world you yes. see as a matter of experience, I'm not making claims about the status of consciousness with respect to the rest sure. of the universe, but the world you experience is absolutely, in every detail, a modification of consciousness and, and in fact, made of consciousness at the level of your, your subjectivity. But the distinction you're making here, which is invoking the, the positive qualities, the, 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 the more, yes. you know, the happiness-producing aspects of losing the sense of self relies more on not so much on the the distinction of centerless cognition it's more that the it's more that the energy of experience yes. the energy of your your, right. your felt presence you know bodily and emotionally all of that is is inseparable from this condition of centerless yes consciousness yeah and that experience can happen you know, subtly, for some, it's kind of intense. Obviously, those <laughs> I work with a bunch of people who do microdosing and mm. or have done, you know, psychedelics and stuff. And I, you know, when I was younger, did so as well. 
So it's not, you know, for some it can be a little initially trippy, but it's not that way. It's kind of it's kind of safe. That's the feeling. You kind of feel this like friendliness of like the lamp on your desk. It's like you just feel like, oh, we're all everything's just kind of perfectly not separate, which is really what emptiness means. That's of course it's always good to talk about emptiness because it means empty of a separate thingness. Mm-hmm. So emptiness is not voidness or no thingness, like there's nothing that exists. It's not nihilism. It's not just absence. It's it's actually interdependence, which means interconnected. So it's empty of separate because it's we're all connected. And that's often, you know, not led but that's what it feels like when you go to non-dual embodied open-hearted bodhicitta natural wisdom compassion emptiness wisdom compassion which is kind of the the three that seem to be connected mm, yeah yeah there's a connection between what you're talking about here the positive qualities of non-dual awareness and another question i wanted to ask you which is we see so many teachers misbehave, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and many of them misbehave under the, the aegis of crazy wisdom or, you know, some kind of enlightened yes. freedom from even, you know, conventional norms of ethics. You know, they, they use their violations of norms as, as teaching occasions, or at least claim to. So I'm wondering what you think about the connection between freedom as you've come to understand it, and mm-hmm. a an ethical way of being in the world. I mean, can you be yeah. an enlightened asshole, essentially? Uh, I mean, there's, <laughs> there certainly seem to be many people who have claimed to be enlightened who have left a fair amount of suffering in their wake. So, Yeah, so I would say that, yeah, my experience, as this is something I've been interested in, and, you know, having trained as a psychotherapist from early on, you know, there's a very clear ethical training. There's a very clear sense of what transference and countertransference or projection is from people who are students or clients. And, you know, there's love transference where they fall in love with you and put you on a pedestal or treat you like you're their long lost parent or romantic interest. And so seeing that that's a natural dynamic is important for ethics right from the beginning for any kind of teacher. And so I think there there is kind of, as we've been talking about, this kind of progressive unfolding of glimpse practices through almost unfolding stages of awakening, that there's an initial awakening where you wake up from the ego center, and then you often wake up from the ego defenses, and then you are many people are often left with their kind of adolescent consciousness or some view that the world is illusion or, you know, everything's okay or some feeling of, you know, they're, they're free of their critic, but they're, they're now starting to act out with a little pride or spiritual ego. And they're claiming full awakening, but it seems like it's almost the natural stage of that initial awakening 
to be free from, but not yet have the non-dual embodied open-hearted view, which has compassion and wisdom and literally feels like you see the other person as yourself in a very intimate way, the way you would see your own child or you just see them like, oh my God, look, they're me. They're like, how else would you treat them except with respect and integrity and interest in listening to them and what do you mean by that or or kind of feeling when they're caught in a state of you know confusion about who you are or they are and so i i feel like it's you know it's part of moving this whole project into a more democratic contemporary cultural perspective of awakening that has you know psychology and neuroscience and ethics right up front and center so that it can be a holistic way of of really you know in some ways awakening to the next stage of human development you know and it's clear that there are different overlaps from kind of meditation and psychology but they're not the same and they don't address the same things so there's you know there's that that needs to be clearly brought forth so do you think there's psychological growth that requires fundamentally different tools beyond doing this kind of practice yeah i mean i'll, I'll say my my little little phrase which is that you can't fully grow up unless you wake up if you wake up you have to continue to grow up mm. so so with that to say that you know i i add to you know their spiritual bypassing and i add to that kind of psychological underpassing which is just doing psychological work and trying to understand your psychology without recognizing the innate consciousness as primary and then the freedom from the small self into the next loving you know sense of self or no self self and then the third one i have is called cognitive overpass which is i think you mentioned before which is some people who have initial awakening and then make it a philosophy and kind mm. of make excuses about why they're doing what they're doing yeah i guess the way i think about this is that whatever you do by way of meditative practice you're very likely to spend most of your time lost in thought anyway right i mean mm -hmm. people you know they they can punctuate their their lives even with with non-dual mindfulness but an immense amount of waking life will be devoted to the slavery that is is dictated by just being lost in thought to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking so for all of that time you are going to be whoever you are conditioned to be right and so if you if you don't have certain tools if you don't have a certain understanding if you, you lack crucial knowledge or skills mm -hmm. you're not going to magically have those skills because you're you're right. occasionally punctuating the cacophony of of you with even non-dual mindfulness and also even in a condition of real stability in this awakened awareness you're not going to be magically given a new culture a new knowledge base in the conventional sense, right? Like, if you don't know anything about science now, you're not going to know a lot about science by stabilizing Rigpa. Mm -hmm. So it's it's interesting to to consider just what else might be required to live a 
truly fulfilled and self-actualized life in in the 21st century mm -hmm. once one you know prior to practice or during practice or even after practices is well underway because sure there's so many examples of of seemingly great meditation masters who mm -hmm. yeah have just screwed up so royally in, in how they've you know, taken on students and and essentially mistreated them and it's it's hard to imagine that these teachers weren't well aware of the kind of experience we're talking about right right yes i think there is kind of a gap there's like a a stage of that initial no self that has no no self no ego no ego defenses no superego no and and it feels like a freedom into a you know it becomes almost like a cognitive belief that feeds a spiritual ego that blinds them to making it about them as if they're awake mm. you know i'm the awake person and you're not you know i'm the butterfly and you know the caterpillars you know can serve me and it literally is a like a a blind spot in the process that I think Western versions of this hopefully now will become even more attuned to. Hmm. Do, do you think that traditional Eastern guru disciple principle is, is just broken or, or just t too anachronistic to be used with a clear conscience now? I think, you know, with good, again, it's almost like, you know, I tend to kind of even the way I do my glimpses and teaching is kind of say there's different types of people, there's kinesthetic types, there's, you know, auditory, verbal, there's different learners. There, there for some people with a good Eastern teacher going through traditional practices can be very helpful. And in general for... I guess I'm not thinking so much about the, the practices. It's more just the, the... Oh, the relationship. The relationship and the, and the, the near deification of right. the person. I mean, you're, I mean, within, as you know, in the Tibetan context, and yeah. this is true in the Hindu context, you're encouraged to see your guru as essentially perfect, and, and there's a, a whole layer of beliefs that people take on with respect to the, you know, the yes. the, the wisdom and, and power of, of this figure, and, and, and a lot of it is no doubt born of the transference and counter-transference yeah. that's practiced without any critical distance in the context of, of being in a, in a spiritual community and, and being devoted to a teacher. But it's also that there's, you know, there are wonderful experiences of devotion to be had and, and gratitude to be had yeah. in the context of meeting somebody who's far more experienced than you are in, yes. in, in this these kinds of insights. But there's a reason why I've never joined yeah. Any spiritual community. I mean, there's there's no spiritual community I've come into, however great the teacher seemed to me, where I felt this is obviously the the perfect thing to be doing, just living completely immersed in this community. I mean, the the, the yes. pathology of it has always been fairly yeah. easy to discern, and I'm not even talking about anything that has degraded into a, a proper cult. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way as you. I have the same. Consciousness. I've never been attracted to that. I've always felt kind of not necessary. And, you know, I've met some of these great teachers and I've always felt like grateful to them, but like I would toward, you know, a professor or toward a mensch in my community growing up who helped me 
get through an exam I needed help with or something. So I was like, oh, I'm grateful for what you're doing and, you know, but never, you know, raising them up to a figure that is worthy of some different kind of devotion. You know, I understand it's representational and it's a progression that you're worshiping the guru. So then you realize the guru is above their head. Now it's above your head. Now the guru is within. I think we can go right to the the guru is within and and find a way to, you know, be discover humility and appreciation of of teachers. You know, the way I teach is kind of like a, you know, more like a friend coach that is, you know, always encouraging people like, check this out. Oh, I see what's going on. Let me help you fine tune that, you know, and it seems like a little more natural contemporary way to go about this. Mm. Well, what about people who get destabilized in in an unpleasant way? Yeah. Through doing this kind of practice. I mean, this this definitely comes up on, you know, ordinary vipassana retreats. I don't know how often it comes up yeah. for you in in your work, but how do you think about people who who seem to at least on their own account glimpse something of the illusoriness of the self, but that glimpse is not at all a pleasant one. It just it, it just opens right. the door into a a very fearful, nihilistic. You know, like somehow there's no there's no point in anything anymore. You know, yeah. this, I I get this when I talk about free will and it being yeah. an illusion. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I hear from some number of people for whom that just the, the mere yeah concept of that seems <clears throat> totally antithetical to any reason that that makes life worth living them and and, yeah. they, and they really do have a kind of crisis over it so what's your yeah. experience there so i mean this question that you're asking is the question i asked me myself early on i was one of the first teachers at new york insight meditation center so i taught deliberate mindfulness or kind of longer beginner and longer retreats and i would see what you know some people who have studied it like willoughby britain has noticed that people, when they deconstructed and sat long sittings, just observing contents of consciousness, would get flooded by their unconscious. And so I actually was led from there to realize, oh, a more advanced approach actually is more helpful to give the full map from the beginning and to give a glimpse of the solution immediately upon deconstructing, point out that there's an awareness that's aware that's interconnected and is here to be with any emotions or parts of you that arise. And so I've literally never had anyone in a long retreat over the last five years have a have any of the breakdowns. And the people don't also go through couch potato mode, which some other traditions tend to get people who kind of deconstruct and then go into like a I haven't been working for a while because I'm just, there's nobody here named luck and there's just awareness and I can't find motivation. So by starting with a simple but full map and going through these series of pointers that deconstruct, point to the awareness, recognize it's it's awake and that it's connected back to being able to observe thoughts, feelings, sensations that are made of awareness and feel this ground of being and then this open-hearted 
awareness, this kind of heart-mind bodhicitta that you can then begin to include the arising of repressed contents. And in fact, I, you know, I integrate as part of my book and a part of my retreats, a kind of model of psychology that I had developed and then found a colleague, Richard Schwartz, who developed this internal family systems and we've taught together. But basically we have this same discovery that in working with people with complex trauma, who normally would be the least likely to be thought of as ability to recognize this no self self, that I began to to point to this basic goodness, awareness of parts of emotions. And not only can they be aware of it, but it's actually what heals the complex trauma. So like a simple version would be like working with an inpatient person who's cutting themselves Mm. and asking, you know, are you aware of a part of yourself that wants to cut yourself now or soon? And they would say, well, yeah, yes, I am. Where is it? Oh, it's like right here. And it, what does it feel like? Oh, it feels like it is really angry and wants to kind of discharge something. It's like, okay, are you aware of a part of yourself that wants relief or doesn't want to cut yourself? They say, and then they you know, may feel a little tears or they may just say, yeah, there is that. And then just asking, well, who's aware of those two parts of you? And they literally like, you know, that's one pointer, but literally they go, well, I am. Well, then how do you feel toward these two parts? Well, I feel compassion toward them both. And then they, well, can you feel that, that you're calling you that is aware of these parts? Oh my God, yes. Wow, this is like when I was a child, I felt this. I haven't felt this since then. Well, so how do you feel now when you look at me? Well, I feel like I'm, it's a relief. It's kind of a, a joy. So, you know, this is kind of surprising because there is even in the direct pointing traditions, they talk about people who are wet wood and damp wood and only dry wood can really mm. get these teachings and you should wait until this happens. And I feel like now's the time. This is learnable. This is teachable. This is valuable. This is respecting all past traditions. But if this can be done, if we can literally help people reduce suffering on the neurotic level as well as the traumatic level, and there is this this there there that is awakening, which I think is true, then let's learn how to do it together. Let's learn how to share it with each other. Yeah, well, we're in agreement there. It's it's really uh, it's great to meet you from afar here. And yes, absolutely. Yeah, I've always thought we would meet, and glad we'd have. Yeah. Well, next time in person. Looking forward to it. So, but before I let you go, Locke, where can people find you? Your your books are Shift into Freedom and the Way of Effortless Mindfulness. But if someone wants to sit a retreat with you or or otherwise get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, so I guess the best place would just be my website, which has a lot of the events and YouTubes and things that are free. And so that's lockkelly.org. So L O C H K E L L Y.org. And you'll 
see a lot of options and I look forward to meeting some of you sometime soon. Great. Well, until next time, Locke. Okay. Thanks so much, Sam.